You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor, and this week is National Teacher Appreciation Week. And so we thought we would go back into our archives and pull out clips from some people that we interviewed over the last year and a half who are either connected to education by being virtue of teaching or teachers themselves or former teachers or people who are contributing in a significant way to the education of young people and thereby supporting teachers so that they can be successful fulfilling their mission of educating our young people. And we are going to share clips from three individuals in particular. We thought it was important to demonstrate the power of philanthropy to assist teachers. As you know, this show is all about giving back and supporting community and inspiring others to contribute in some significant way to furthering our society's aims. And we all would agree that education is one of the most important tools, one of the most important assets that we can provide young people. And yet we also know that there are many communities where the educational attainment is not equal. And fortunately for teachers, there are others out there who are trying to help equalize the playing field so that teachers in these communities can be their best and deliver their best and our students can get the most out of their education. So first we're gonna talk with Pete Cadence. You remember we had a nice talk with Pete about the work he's doing to try to incentivize young people to stay in school by providing free tuition not only for them, but for one parent, assuming that these young people want to go on to higher education, that be college or, or to a trade school. And we wanted to talk to Pete because he's also thinking about how he can scale this. And Pete is such an individual who believes that if we can educate young people, if we can get them the education that they need to succeed, then society will be the better for it. So here's a little clip from our interview with Pete. But you know, what's really interesting about you is not so much how you made your wealth, which is what it is, 
but what you plan to do with it. I think you're getting a lot of attention because of your interest and your efforts to see more underprivileged people get educated and a foothold in our society. And one such initiative you, you launched in Toledo, which got my attention, you promised a group of high school students that you would pay their tuition, you know, once they graduated. And I, I would love to know what inspired you to tackle that, to just stand up and do that. And also, you, you mentioned, you know, during that announcement that you didn't see this as a gift. On this podcast, I talk a lot about giving and serving. But in your case, you see it as an obligation or responsibility. So I would love to understand your thinking that drives you to believe that this thing that we would most consider to be a gift, you consider an obligation. Yeah, that's a great question, Art. Yeah, and, you know, giving connotes you have a choice, right? It's at your option, whereas responsibility means that you have an obligation. You have to do. You have no, you have no choice. When I thought about the setup of my life, here I am, a middle-class white kid who went to the best public high school in the state of Ohio, consistently rated the number one public high school in the state of Ohio, mostly white high school. Four and a half miles down the road is an all-black, underserved high school, rated one of the poorest high schools in the state of Ohio in terms of the poverty levels as well as the actual educational experience. And I always thought about that inequity. Like, those kids weren't less intellectually capable than me. Those kids weren't less talented than me. They just less, had less access and less opportunity than me. And so when you think about, like, how did I make this fortune? How did I create this success? The truth is, is that I won in life because other people lost. In other words, if those kids at Scott High School in Toledo, Ohio, that underserved high school, got the same access, had the same network, had the same educational training that I did, and they applied to the same colleges I applied to, would I have gotten into all those colleges? Probably not. And so, in fact, the setup is that I won in life because they lost. The inequities of our society enabled me to flourish and forced them to, to fail in some, in, in some cases. And so I'm one of those people, like, I have what's called a high sleep at night quotient. I like to sleep well at night. And I don't sleep well knowing that I built my fortune on the backs of other people who failed because society failed them. And so because I want to sleep well at night, and that's a little bit self-serving, but I was like, you know what? There's that saying, Art, pay it forward. I kind of, in some sense, at least out of the gates when I first got my real, my, achieved my real fortune, I like the notion of pay it backward. Who are the people and communities and individuals who gave me the tools and balance sheet and abilities to go out and succeed in life? And who are the people who suffered along the way as a result of me succeeding? And I got to pay it backwards. So that's why I went back to my hometown. That's why I went back to the underserved school. And actually, just to, to supplement what you said, I'm actually paying for now two classes of students. And it's actually not just the students. It's their parents as well. And the reason I bring that up and why that's so important is because when we solve for intractable issues in our society with our charitable work, a lot of times I feel like our solutions are one-dimensional. 
But poverty is multidimensional and multifaceted. And poverty is not one generational. Poverty is multigenerational. And so I kind of looked at it and said, I can't solve poverty in this community with a one generation solution because all these all this generation of kids will become is just an anomaly. They'll become an exception to the rule. I want to create it. I wanted to create a trend. And that's why I created a two generation solution and hopefully it creates a trend that changes the narrative, the outcomes and the opportunities in that community in Ohio. And then I as we'll talk about later, I'm continuing to further that concept. That what I did in Toledo was kind of the appetizer. I have a I have a full-fledged entree planned for for later as well. So let's talk about where we go from here, Pete, with your idea for scaling this idea of getting young people educated. Yeah, and Art, to, to your earlier point about opening up the aperture, the educational aperture to view this from a perspective of it's not necessarily just four-year degrees or even associate's degrees that, you know, are the ultimate benefit here. It's, it's kind of an open architecture where students can choose from a variety of different educational opportunities, some of which are trade and skill-based, welding, forklift, transportation, distribution, logistics, coding. There's a whole suite of things that, that these students and their families can do to acquire skills and to double or triple their income opportunities uh, versus working just an hourly job. And, and we need to afford those opportunities to them. I feel like we have a habit is a, is a secondary and post-secondary educational structure of mainstreaming our students. You know, I know at Bucknell, which is, I love Bucknell, it was a fascinating experience. I, I, I'm a very, very proud alum, but they mainstreamed me into accounting, finance, consulting. That was like, or investment banking, right? That was like, that was how we got mainstreamed. And by the way, the only people showed, that showed up at the career fairs to recruit were accounting, finance, investment banking, right? So it's like, it, it was like a self-fulfilling prophecy to a certain extent. And similarly, there's like this notion that we're only really proud of kids if they get, if they get that four-year degree. But there's a lot of kids, and I'm dealing with some of these kids right now with my work in Toledo. They weren't meant for four-year degrees. They weren't meant for that work. And but they got, they're really capable with their hands. Their brains work a little bit differently. They're really technically able. And so I think we have to stop mainstreaming these students and start curating career opportunities to their skills and desires and start curating educational opportunities to their skills and desires. And so that's one of the reasons why uh, in my platform, which is called HOPE, which stands for Helping Our Population Educate. Education is a broad spectrum of of things, not just four-year college and not just four-year college. Well, you just heard Pete Cadence talk about what he's doing to support young people in disadvantaged communities to incentivize them to know that when they get through schools, through their K through 12 education, there are going to be other opportunities for them to continue their education. And this is great. Now, in this next clip, you're going to hear some of my frustration come out when I'm speaking with Aaron Bass, who is the CEO of Eastside Charter School in Delaware. And my frustration you'll hear is coming through because we seem to want to pass the buck, the adults involved in educating kids, not just the teachers, but the administrators and the state leaders and 
teacher unions and others associated with the educational industrial complex. We seem to want to pass the buck and not take accountability. So you see some of my frustration coming through. And Aaron, on the other hand, is one of these people who does not take it. Um, he, he's not one of these people who will um, pass the buck. He takes it on himself and his team to make sure that young people get what they need in Eastside Charter School. And so he is really a refreshing voice, a former teacher himself, now a school leader, in fact, a leader of many schools over his years uh, in this field. He has taken responsibility for improving the conditions under which his kids learn, and the results are astounding. And so let's listen in to Aaron a little bit, and you'll, as I mentioned, you'll hear my frustration. But the hope is that we can have more Aaron Basses out there. And I know there are. There are lots of Aaron Basses out there. And there are lots of teachers we know who are doing tr tremendous work under very difficult circumstances. And we want to hold them up, too. And Aaron, I just want to know, what are people doing? What are they doing with these kids? What are they doing? I mean, if, you, if you're a teacher... What are you doing if you have that many kids who are just failing every class? And what are we doing when we say we have to pass these kids along? You figured something out. What are you doing that's different? So, one, we don't have any silver bullet. Our, our ethos is love. Our, our ethos is we, we, we love our students. We love our community. And we're going to operate out of a place of love, which means that we're going to have some hard conversations with families. It means that, you know, with a tough conversation, I'm coming out of a place of love and I am treating your child the same way I would treat my own in the same school that my own children go to. It means that uh, we have staff, Eastside, for example, three, year, three, four years ago, Eastside was losing two thirds of our staff every year. So for the children that had the highest amount of trauma, the most inconsistent backgrounds in their lives would come to a school that offered them inconsistency. We started focusing on how to retain our staff. This past month, we were just named one of the top places in the state of Delaware to work and retain over 90% of our staff. And what's working is we actually started tracking our data, having really transparent conversations with our staff our staff started investing in the work that we're doing, and now they have children from administrators, uh, teachers, paraprofessionals. Everybody is now pushing their children towards being in this school that by all statistical purposes should not survive. And so what we're doing is we spend the time. We build those relationships. We uh, believe in what is audacious. And we are relentless at making sure that we can hit that. But it feels sometimes frustrating, you know, when you hear the teachers say on the one hand that it's not our fault. And you hear the administrators say, well, it's not our fault. And you hear the school district saying, well, it's not our fault. And you hear the parents saying it's not our fault. You hear the state saying it's not our fault. Well, who's 
fault is it? You know, that's what I'm trying to figure out. You know, is it the student's fault? Whose fault? I mean, we can't seem to get the kind of accountability in many places that it takes to drive change and success. And it's frustrating when I hear these stories. It's really frustrating to me. But that goes back to the, the past in the buck. And so if you actually have ownership over what you're doing, then you have to problem solve that. So I'll give you an example. You're right that it's easy to say it's, uh, it's the student's fault. Truth is, it's never the student's fault. It's not. We have failed generations and generations of children because adults are fighting adults and children are losing out. So it does mean that if a system is not holding children accountable, and teaching them the right things to do. I can tell you what not to do, and I can penalize you for that. But if I've never taught you and trained you in what to do, then shame on us. So we looked at that and said, our children are making these bad decisions. We had tons of survey data and discipline data and said, our kids are messing up. So we changed the environment to reduce our suspension rate by 75% while simultaneously increasing our student success rate on assessments. So if you're right, we can't pass the buck, our children are messing up, then how do we teach them what to do? How do you teach a child that's never been taught how to delay gratification to do just that? How do you teach a child that doesn't know how to regulate their emotions to know, you know what, this is the moment that I need to advocate for myself and this is when I need to be silent. And know that I can be heard because I've lived my life so long not being heard that all I can do is act this certain way. How do you deal with a child that only uh, has tantrums and is yelling because that's the only way they've been taught to communicate? So that was one thing we talked about with students. How do we change the environment? And we worked on that. We've looked at how do we make sure that our children are able to be successful academically. We started partnering because we looked at our community and said, we, our children need to see a larger world. So we started partnering with private schools. And now our honors program has students that attend our school in Riverside, which I told you about the community. And now they take classes simultaneous at private schools where the average tuition is $27,000 a year. Wow. You heard that powerful clip from Aaron Bass. And now we're going to talk with Stacy Holland, who is no longer teaching herself, but runs an organization that is totally dedicated to improving schools and student outcomes in Philadelphia. Aaron, as you could see, still in the schools, is working very hard and smart, I should say, to make sure that those kids will have great outcomes and that his teachers have the vision and leadership they need to make sure those kids are successful. And what Stacy is doing in Philadelphia with the organization called the Philadelphia School Partnership is attempting to make each school in Philadelphia that is underperforming better. And recently, the Philadelphia School Partnership has embarked upon a new strategic plan just hot off the press where they will be focused on four areas, setting and holding 
long-term vision by aligning civic leaders to achieve academic experience and define and measure student and school success. Secondly, they will be investing in schools and finding ways to support schools financially. Everything from good to great cohorts of tri-sector, beat the odds schools, new schools and the expansion of great schools and comprehensive talent pipeline development. They'll also be creating conditions for success by expanding family access and education and enrollment services. They'll be investing in family and engagement policy advocacy and trying to scale and share the modern learning experience. And you heard Stacy, you'll hear Stacy talk about this in the clip. She believes that our educational system today is outmoded. So she'll be trying to scale along with PSP, of course, scale and share the modern learning experience. And then finally, they want to try to change the narrative. They want to communicate the vision for quality modern learning in Philadelphia and focus on asset-based lens development to highlight what is working for our kids. So let's listen into my interview now with Stacy, and you'll see just how powerful the potential is for an organization like PSP to get things done, especially now in Philadelphia, when there is a mayoral campaign coming up. So the city will be getting a new mayor. They've just hired a new superintendent for the school systems. And so you're going to see lots of transition in Philadelphia, which is a great time for an organization like PSP to really get focused again in how it can be impactful in changing the lives of kids by improving their educational outcome. What are we seeing, though, in the, in the field of education right now to help people like you, probably like me, too, because I was also one of these people who was woefully behind when I entered college. What are we doing to to help them? And if you add on the pandemic and Zoom classes that are probably underperforming expectations, what are we doing? What are we going to see if we aren't able to help these young people get caught up? So I think we have to start first of all, with just acknowledging as a country that our entire educational system, specifically in K-12, is outdated. And it's we're still working on an industrial age structure of which we are no longer an industrial economy. We are a knowledge economy. So we first need to start with the fact of we have to educate people to actually perform and think differently in a whole different global context. And I think once we start there, this is, if we look at COVID and the lessons it has taught us, one of the things it did was reveal all of the brokenness of our educational system across the board for learners. And I intentionally use the word learners versus students. Our systems are not designed to teach learners, to build learners, to have them discover. It's a science right? How your brain takes in information, how you at the end of the day 
process that information, how you then push that information out, how you apply that information. And because we are not doing that intentionally across the board for everybody, we are leaving groups of kids behind, specifically those young people who don't have a safety net, right? They're not living in a community that is economically prosperous. Their schools, all the extra supports that those schools have do not exist in our low-income communities, whether it be rural or urban, they don't exist. So now the safety net's gone too. So COVID kind of blew that all up and said, hey, guess what? Not only do you have a problem because your entire structure is outdated, you now have a problem because every community is disrupted. And what are you going to do? And I think there is an opportunity for us as a country and there's opportunity for us, one, to tell some truths that we have been unwilling to address and both at the federal level, at the state level and at the local level and in local level, meaning cities or towns, but also in individual households and in our own informal communities that we've got to rethink the way that we are supporting young people in their learning journey. It's not about test scores. It's not about not about performance and certain benchmarks. That's data and information that tells us where the young person is. But the next step is you've got to be willing, adult, educator, system leader, you've got to be willing to think creatively around how to build experiences and systems that moves that young person through a learning journey. And if we do that well, they will perform on all the tests. Yeah. Well, it's an enormously challenging role, I think, too, because there's so many players that have to come together to make change in education. We know that there are schools themselves, school systems, there are teachers' unions, there are parents, of course, parent organizations who have a stake. There's so many different stakeholders. There's the political environment in which funding flows. How does PSP work to coalesce or form these coalitions to actually get things done? Well, I think first we have to acknowledge that everybody actually wants the same thing. Everybody is working towards a common goal or working on behalf of a common goal of how do we provide the best education possible that prepares kids for life beyond high school. We have to prepare them for post-secondary and more importantly, we're preparing them to be productive citizens. So once you acknowledge that, what you then have to focus in on you know, I call it the the journey of finding friends. (laughs) You have to focus in on who's aligned with you. And, you know, we tend, I've been convening most of my career and we tend to want to start really huge. Like, my goodness, we must get everybody under the tent. Well, you actually must find some, a few focused friends that are really aligned around the problem you're trying to solve in the moment, because that's a discipline. Everybody's got to leave leave their ego outside the door. We have to stay focused on solving a functional problem. Everybody's got to be willing to change their behavior. And you've got to be willing to adjust for the greater good of the group. So what we'll do is identify what are the core problems we're, we're trying to solve in the moment? Who are those allied organizations that we need to solve this problem? 
develop the discipline of what it means to collaborate well. And collaborate well does not always mean you agree. It means that you have an intellectual capital that everybody needs and you're willing to put it on the table and struggle through what it means to bring all of your intellect and your resources to solve that problem. And you're willing to fight through the messy with the goal of, did we actually achieve the objective that we came together with? And I think we will spend a lot of time trying to find those organizations that have complementary intellectual capital and purpose, and then working with them so we can move the needle for as many kids as possible. Well, I hope you also will be thinking about what you can do to support the education of young people. I know many of our listeners are parents. You have kids in school. And so your focus is going to be naturally on your kid and on your school, which makes all the sense in the world. And for those who don't have kids in school, I wonder if it will make sense for you to think about what you can do to support teachers in particular. They have, in my opinion, the most important job in our society to educate our young people so that they can be self-sustaining and contributing members of our society, but also find work and be happy and productive people and to approach their work with joy, to be lifelong learners. All of these are, I think, the special assignments that we give to teachers. You know, teachers have our kids in many cases longer than we have them as parents. We essentially turn our kids over to them in many cases to make sure that they are getting the education that they need. But we also have to be supportive of the teachers by making sure we're giving our kids what they need at home. And if they aren't able to get it at home, that they're able to be positioned to get what they need if they can't get it at home. And you've heard from these three individuals that we talked to today how they're going about impacting the education of young people. And as I said before, it would also be really valuable and helpful if we could all think about what we could do to make sure our kids succeeded. Well, I want to thank you all for listening to this special edition of the Heart of Giving podcast focused on education of our young people and being thankful for all the great work that the many teachers in our country are doing to educate our young people. And if you want to hear other podcasts, you can find us on all major podcast platforms. Please leave a a note of appreciation or comment if you care to on Apple Podcasts, especially because it helps us build audience. And of course, if you'd like to support the podcast financially, please do so by going to give.org. Most people don't realize that Give.org is a charity that is supporting the podcast, and it could very well use your support in making sure that we're able to continue to bring you these stories of great leaders doing great things in our society, and also for Give.org to be able to provide the kind of information to donors that makes a difference for them and to support charities in their efforts to become trustworthy organizations worthy of your support. 
Thank you very much. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.